Hi, I'm Mickey Lowe. Hi, I'm Bishop Todd. And welcome, welcome to, to the, the C4SO, C4SO Podcast. Podcast. So Mickey, today we are in the company of greatness. It's not often we've had on the C4SO Podcast such an, a lovely intellectual. I know, I know. This is Edgardo Colón Emerique. He is Puerto Rican. It's important to mention that because this is yes. Hispanic Heritage Month. So we are yeah. celebrating that. He's the Dean of Duke Divinity School, the Irene and William McCutcheon Professor of Reconciliation and Theology, Director of the Center for Reconciliation. I mean, he is just a fantastic resource, a great mind. And it was such a joy to talk to him about his experience growing up in Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. some of the family traditions that he thinks about often. And then it was really, really sweet to talk to him about his ministry experience and how he felt called to ministry, how he was led to the Lord. And yeah, he obviously has wide experience with Latino, Latina heritage yes. that's spread out all over America. And so I thought it was fantastic when we were to ask him questions like, hey, help us see how a distinctive Hispanic reflection on mm -hmm. the scriptures is helpful to us, how, you know, the historic Hispanic church might have something to say to American culture today. Also, just a little warning, there was a couple of little glitchy internet moments in this podcast, but something that's pretty easy to get through. So yeah, don't we, worry. We made it through. We did. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with our friend Edgardo Colón Emerique. Our guest today on the C4SO podcast is Dr. Eduardo Colón Emmerich from Puerto Rico. I respect you so much that I literally went online to listen to how do you pronounce this dear, dear man's name properly. So I'm so sorry for that Anglo pronunciation. <laughs> no worries about that. Uh, it's uh, good to be here with you. I wondered if you would tell us, how would your mother pronounce your name? My mother would say Edgardo. Edgardo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What if you were in trouble? How would your mother yell <laughs> your name at you if you because you wouldn't come in for dinner or something? Yeah. <laughs> That's been such a long time ago. I always <laughs> <do not> remember. <laughs> she might have had some other choice words in there. Mm. I don't know your mother, but <laughs> no, no, probably not. But but uh, yes. Actually, she says that I was a very obedient child. Okay. Oh, which shows that actually. Uh, I was able to do a lot of things without her knowing about them, I guess. Oh. <laughs> I, see. I thought we actually had a holy person on there here for once. Oh, wow. <laughs> so they were so. That is awesome. Well, well it's, we're really great to have you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much. Edgardo, we, we would love to just open up our time together by getting to know a little bit about you. Mm -hmm. This is a part of our Hispanic Heritage Month series. And so we would love to hear kind of about your upbringing, being born and raised in Puerto Rico. And maybe let's start with a, a favorite childhood memory, if you can kind of think back to your time growing up. Of course, there are many such memories. One I will mention that will show you that I was not such a good boy <laughs> was that I would uh, love appropriating mangoes from the from a neighbor's yard. Okay, <laughs> appropriating. Okay. And, 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 and that involves climbing on rooftops and, and, and jumping from a rooftop to a tree. Wow. And, and, and all kinds of pirouettes like that and acrobatics so yeah. th those were very uh, fun uh, <laughs> fun and fond memories and and then too I, I would note uh, an important one for being where I am uh, was learning English mm -hmm. and okay. going to 
going into an intensive summer program uh, to learn mm. English. And gotcha. that was something that was very hard to do at the same time, uh, vital for opening many doors and uh, mm. opening doors for me to come study to the United States. What is something that you think back on and it ties you to your culture? What is something you look back fondly, something you did, like a practice or a tradition? One that comes right away to my mind is the practice of uh, trullas. Okay. And so in, in Puerto Rico during Christmas time, we would uh, go on something similar to caroling. Yeah. Uh, except that you begin very late at night, uh, 11 p.m. Uh, or something like that, maybe later than that. Mm -hmm. And you, the idea is to wake somebody up at their house with the music. Oh. Yeah, I've in. heard of this. They yeah, feed you, uh, give you drinks, and then you go to the next place. And so you mm -hmm. end in the wee hours of the morning going from uh, visiting different houses yes. uh, and waking people up and being welcomed. You might give them a heads up that this is coming in the next few weeks, <laughs> yeah. uh, but that's all they know. And they have to be prepared to receive anywhere from 15 to 30 people uh, in their house in the middle of the night. Growing up, I, I was not always Anglican. I grew up in the Assemblies of God, the Hispanic Assemblies of God. And so a lot of the churches that I grew up in had a huge uh, Puerto Rican population. And I remember... Uh, doing this one year and I, I was a kid and I thought this was the funnest thing ever. Like it was so much fun and I had never experienced anything like it. And I can see how that could be really formative for someone looking forward to that every year. That's really cool. Uh, th those practices have, you know, have changed over time. Uh, mm, and, okay. And, and that is, of course, part of any culture is that it changes over time. Mm -hmm. And growing up it, in Puerto Rico at that time, was a very distinctively Spanish uh, language culture in ways that are different now. Now there's much more hybridity, particularly in the uh, in the city areas, uh, with English being spoken more commonly than it used to be when I was growing up. When I was growing up, we never heard English except in English mm. class. Uh, mm, but gotcha. things are different now, and that's also part of the gift of of culture, and of course, a family. Uh, we've always had family who were in the U.S. as well, even growing up. And so one of my fond memories as well was coming to the United States, to the Northeast, uh, to visit with family. So now maybe come and pivoting a little bit, tell us about what's the earliest memory of being a Christian? What was your faith journey like? And then maybe give us some insight as to how you discerned a call to ministry and sort of leading into the work that you do now. Thank you for asking the question. I grew up in Puerto Rico in a Roman Catholic environment, particularly at that time, Roman Catholicism was very pervasive throughout the culture and Protestantism existed, of course, but it was not the background for my formation. I attended Catholic schools and had that faith formation as part of my education, but didn't really mm -hmm. attend church regularly. It was not uh, until I came to the United States and went to college that I became really a Christian and received the witness of another Christian that led me to confess Jesus Christ as my Lord. And, mm -hmm. and after that confession of faith, then I saw my whole upbringing in a new light 
and saw how God had been present in my upbringing and the experiences I had uh, as a child when I experienced my first communion and later as a teen when I experienced confirmation. <coughs> I, I saw all these things in a new light when I became a Christian, uh, more intentionally, uh, more uh, as a lifelong commitment. And that marked a significant change in how I understood myself, understood my vocation, uh, mm. because I had come to the United States to yeah. study engineering. And the confession of faith in Christ as a college student began the journey eventually to theology, but only after completing a couple of degrees in engineering first. On the one hand, this very strong formation in Roman Catholicism, but without it being deeply received, and then very important encounters with more evangelical expressions of faith that then first led me to become a more committed Catholic, but eventually to uh, become a Protestant. Wow, that's incredible. So, Eduardo, tell us now a bit about your ministry experience. So uh, we now understand how you came to faith, but talk about you as the the theologian, your ministry experience, and how it is that you came to Duke Divinity. I came to Duke Divinity School because of the call to ministry. Mm. It was a call that had been gestating for for a while uh, since my college days, but not considered seriously because I was on a path to be an engineer. Oh, okay. And it wasn't until it I was in a time of discernment, of uncertainty about what my future would be in engineering. I was completing a master's degree on that. Uh, okay. My wife um, was the one who articulated the call to ministry and said, maybe God is calling you to be a, a pastor. Wow. Okay. And she said that there was an immediate sense of confirmation that that was exactly right. Hmm. And followed by a tremendous sense of uh uncertainty, fear, uh, because this was not a path that I was prepared for, Uh, had no background of family or anyone that I had met or knew well who had been a pastor. And it marked a significant departure from my education in engineering and what I had come to the United States to do. Wow. So that is, you experienced a a bit of a word from the Lord from your wife. Yeah. (laughs) That's fun. Absolutely. 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 And, and, and so it was after that, that I completed my master's work in engineering, but then immediately turned to uh. theological studies at Duke Divinity School. And mm. then coming to Duke Divinity School with the question of within this call, with a sense I'm going to be a pastor, but then also finding interest in academic studies yeah. and in academia, which many who come to Duke Divinity also are wondering about those things too. I was not alone in that regard. But right, then right. to find confirmation both in work in the parish and also work in the academy. And when I graduated from the master, with the Master of Divinity from Duke Divinity School, I went then to start a new church, a uh, church plant in uh, oh, a right. Hispanic community in Durham, North Carolina, yeah. and, and worked in that, in that field. And, it, and that experience uh, was there for five years, was transformative for me, uh, wow, both yeah. of my vocation, and also my theological vision, because I was working in a margin, among a marginalized community. Mm-hmm. And, and even though I was still in Durham, where Duke is, it was a very different setting from Duke. And yeah. it 
informed me very powerfully in ways that have influenced how I studied then theology in my doctoral studies, how I approach my teaching at the Divinity School, and also my priorities for leadership as well. Something we really wanted to talk to you about is the distinctive contributions of the Hispanic church and how it relates to the global church, right? So you planted uh, Cristo Vive, which is a Hispanic church. You know, you were the founder of the Hispanic House of Studies at Duke. Um, And then I also read in your bio that you've worked in so many countries like El Salvador, Guatemala, all these, you know, Central American countries. And you've seen Christianity and the faith kind of lived out in in these contexts. And so if we take a wide lens, what are the distinctive contributions of the Hispanic church? That is a wonderful question. First contribution that comes to mind is the gift of fiesta. Mm. Mm. Amen. We love to feast. That there, and one of the things I found and that really shaped me and transformed me in my ministry among Hispanics in Durham, North Carolina, was mm-hmm. ex- encountering and working with families that were in economic situations of economic scarcity. And yet when it was time to celebrate, you went all out. Uh, yep. And you went all out in ways that seemed very uh, foolish from one vantage point because so many resources are being invested on, some, on a one-year-old birthday, uh, mm. a child who will not remember this at all. But it was, an, it was a kind of an affirmation of the gift of life and yeah. that life mm. is to be celebrated now. Uh, and you can't simply put it off for some future that may never come when you're better off and you can do all these things. But to say, no, we, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So we celebrate the gift of life today. And that is, and we invite others to join us in that celebration, and to uh, and to affirm that in the midst of it all, in situations of economic, uh, social challenges, still life is worth living, and worth giving God thanks for. And so that that for me is yeah. an incredible uh, contribution to the Church Catholic, if you will, little C. Right, right. And and one that I really learned from the people I was ministering with. That's so good. That's a great point, too. We were wondering as we were preparing yesterday, how do these heritage months become something other than, you know, just kind of social or political or religious correctness or virtue signaling or something? How can you imagine these heritage months being actually good for the church and good for Christian spirituality and good for our discipleship? It's a very good question, uh, Todd. And I hadn't thought about it until you posted in this way, that there is heritage, first of all, that needs to be received and celebrated as a gift, and a gift that comes from God, that to be a Christian is to be a member of a Pentecost people. Mm-hmm. And the celebration of these heritage months is a way of spotlighting aspects of what it means to be a Pentecost people, of the plurality of voices that the Spirit enabled and empowered to be bearer of the good news, that the gospel mm-hmm. can be lived out in so many different ways and cultures, and, the, and that God's name can be praised in so many uh, different accents and languages. But then also, I think it also gives us not 
uh, only a look back, if you will, but a glimpse forward. It's in that regard, I would say, postcard of the kingdom, to mm. s- the, where God's people will be drawn out of every tribe and people and, and, and language to praise. And that these heritage months can also be markers for orienting us on our journey towards the future that God has promised to us. And mm-hmm. so it's diversity that, like all diversity, bears wounds from sin. And that has to also be recognized. And also, like all uh, diversity that has its origins ultimately in human nature and, and therefore in ultimately in God who created human beings, it's diversity that can be healed and redeemed and elevated by God into communion. And so that for me, the heritage then can serve many purposes in the Christian life and in Christian worship, provided we keep this, the, the, this Pentecost uh, view uh, in mind of how the church was born and where mm-hmm. it's going. That's great, Eduardo. Thank you. Putting a little finer point on it, in what way do you suppose a distinctly Hispanic reflection on the scriptures might have something to say to our current moment in America? A distinctively Hispanic uh, perspective is going to be quite broad, first of all, because Hispanic people include so many cultures. Right. Right. Yeah, fair point. Yes. Languages and, and even... Uh, Christian expressions from yeah. the Roman Catholic to the Pentecostal assemblies and, right. and all uh, part of the same people. And in that regard, a sense of the possibility of identities that are very capacious yeah. uh, and that include many, even though there are clearly distinctions and differences. I, I would say, I should say, for example, that uh, for a long time, I identified myself as Puerto Rican rather than Hispanic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as it, and that is common for many of us who come here to the United States from some other place. But, uh, uh, but then there's a, a transition that occurred for me in the parish setting of saying, I'm with my people here and we are Hispanic and not, we're not uh, simply Mexican, Puerto Rican, Nicaraguan. That, that's part of our story too. But now there's a new story that's being knit. And, mm-hmm. that, and that new story is one that is being knit within the body of Christ. The, the, of this new we that is being formed by the Spirit that brings in all these differences and then by the power of the Spirit become a sign of new creation. And mm, what I yeah. think Hispanic people can offer for other uh, communities is our own experiences, our own, our own stories, and our own uh, ways of seeking to follow Jesus Christ from our particular uh, vantage points and situations. With my congregation that was largely first-generation immigrant uh, uh, from Mexico, Central America, and many of whom were undocumented, there were experiences of migration that shed light on how it is that actually the people of God have been a pilgrim people throughout history. Mm. And that the experience of uh, displacement is is part of the story of the church and of the growth of the church of of diaspora communities, of, right. uh, of cross-cultural encounters, of a sense of being uh, a, a, a stranger in all places and also feeling at home in all places, strangely enough. And there's this picks up 
themes from early Christianity. Uh, the word parish, for example, comes from the Greek paroikia, which means community of exiles. And mm. so mm, yes. that sense of being on the move, on being on a journey that yeah. is experienced by aspects of the Hispanic community uh, is very much uh, illuminates what it means to be the people of God on the way. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, for our listeners, most of whom are Christian leaders, most, most of them work in the parish, but they might work other places as well. If they wanted to access these resources um, that you're talking about, um, just kind of rapid fire, no, no expectation of you know something comprehensive here, but just sort of rapid fire. What Latin theologians do you think we should be listening to, to today on first uh, the category of mission and or evangelism? Mm-hmm. Does anybody come to mind that you think, yeah, you know, I think in Hispanic Heritage Month, here's a good time to name yeah. somebody you think could help the global church or, or the U.S. church? I would name a few people. Mm-hmm. I would name Elsa Tamis and her book, Amnesty of Grace, for a Latin American engagement with the doctrine of justification by faith. Mm. I would also name the works of Justo Gonzalez, who has written many, many volumes on these very questions of his, from a Hispanic perspective, engaging scripture, engaging church history. I would also uh, mention in that regard uh, Virgil Elizondo uh, and his work on the Galilean journey and Jesus, uh, the Galilean, in this in living in between several cultures. Hmm. So I could uh, also the works of uh, of uh, Samuel Escobar and and uh, the mission the integral mission people uh, oh, who yeah. worked hmm. in Latin America. Uh, and, and did very important work in showing mission and bringing together evangelism and concerns for social justice. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so there are voices that are Latin American voices and voices that are more uh, North American, Hispanic voices. Yeah. These are all yeah. in conversation with each other and are very rich resources for engaging. Great. We'll put all those in the show notes. What about on the topic of discipleship and spiritual formation? Are there uh, Latin uh, resources that come to your mind? For the topic of spiritual formation, one person that is a bit challenging to read but very rewarding uh, would be uh, John Sobrino and his writings on spirituality and liberation. They are very rich and they are not easy to read always, but they are very important for helping to think of a spirituality that is very socially aware of its context. And then also, I should have mentioned first, Oscar Romero. Oh, uh, yes, and, of course, yeah. And yeah. Oscar, Oscar Romero's sermons, mm-hmm. I yes. would uh, place up there for, I would recommend for any ministerial leader to read because yeah. his vision of, of the gospel is one that is, on the one hand, so very transparently biblical and yes. also very contextual to his setting. And it's, it's something that guides my own work in seeking yes. to hold these things together. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Eduardo. I, I only recently in the last couple of years read most of his stuff. And I had the exact same experience of deeply contextual, a deeply personal, 
deeply social in the sense of, you know, understanding his context and his times and the issues. But then you, like you said, it is so rooted in his love for Jesus. It was, Mm. I loved it a lot. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. And then lastly, um, what about sort of theology proper? Anybody come to your mind that you think we might benefit from on theology? Theology proper, I would recommend the works of uh, one of my colleagues here, Peter Casarella. Uh, mm-hmm. He is doing important work in theology proper. And then uh, also, uh, I would uh, recommend work of uh, Michael Lee as well. He's been doing important work in theology proper too. Mm-hmm. Then in the Latin American setting, I still would say that some of the theologians, uh, well, who have moved back and forth, but uh, someone like Gustavo Gutierrez, Mm-hmm. Still now late late in his in his in his in his days, and he's been writing for many decades, but a very seminal figure, and some of his more recent works blend very much theology and spirituality in ways that actually I think are very important. So that that theology and spirituality are not seen as two different things, but really very deeply interwoven, as they were in the Church Fathers and also in the medieval periods. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. Well, Edgardo, thank you for sharing those resources with us and with our listeners. And and really thank you for the way that you've sort of explained how and painted this beautiful picture of how the Hispanic church uh, lives out scripture as part of, you know, these Pentecost people, as you've mentioned. And so what gives you hope for the future of the Hispanic church and its contributions to American culture and, you know, the Western faith. Well, here I'm going to cheat and say that I've read the end of the story. <laughs> and, and that in the end of the story, it's Pentecost. It's yeah. Revelation 7. And, yeah. that, Amen. and that all this uh, and that his, Hispanic people have a place in that great multitude. One of the things yeah. I tell my students is that in the story of Pentecost, the Galileans uh, are still recognized as Galileans. Even when the Spirit is giving them the power to speak in other languages, I say, why is that? Well, it doesn't say, but I would speculate that it's because they're still speaking with a Galilean accent. Mm. Mm. And that we don't have to hide our accents. And it gives me hope when I see Hispanic people going into spaces of theology, of the academy, the church, and yeah. communicating, but without being ashamed of, or, or or downplaying their accent, that that mm-hmm. is too that contributes to the richness of the whole. It's a gift to be received and celebrated, and I see that um, I see that in the churches and in our community here at Duke Divinity School, and also, like I said, my hope is ultimately in God, and that God has promised this future of mm-hmm. abundance, and where I believe. Hispanics, uh, we have a, our place in that great cosmic symphony. Amen. Amen. That's so good. Would you say there are any other practices that the U.S. church or the Western church needs to engage in more to benefit from uh, Latin Christian spirituality? Gift of family. Mm-hmm. Uh, the gift of family. And, and at the same time, with the gift of family, the way in which the faith is lived in 
multi-generational ways. For so many of us, our grandmothers have been the ones who have modeled and been our, 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 our uh, teachers of the faith. Mm-hmm. It was my grandmother who yeah. first taught me uh, to pray the Lord's Prayer every evening. Um, mm, and so true. that is not a unique story. For many of us, our grandmothers have played such an important role in being the bearers of, uh, of faith. Mm, and then yeah. also uh, with that, something I saw in my community was the way in which faith could reconfigure families. Uh, that mm. There's a gift of hospitality that happens uh, with faith and of homes becoming households that welcome so many people in. I remember in El Salvador, for example, when I would visit my friends there, often houses would have stacks of plastic chairs in reserve just for when people drop wow. by, you don't right. know when, you yeah. can ha- they can ha- find places to sit. Or the way in which when someone w- uh, was baptized, if somebody else was being a sister, a, a, a blood sister, that person was being a godmother, mm-hmm. they now re- they're referred to each other, not as sister, but as co-mother. Uh, comadre, and mm. so that the baptism was reconfiguring also the family relations, and so many ways yeah. in which the living of a faith in the ordinariness of life. This is something another person to uh, mention, Ada Maria Isasi Diaz, another the, uh, Latina theologian, emphasized so clearly and so rightly the holiness of the quotidian or the ordinary, and that mm. this is also, I believe, a gift of. You know, Hispanic Christianity for uh, the for the Church Catholic that God is yeah. present in the ordinary and we can celebrate that presence and discover it. Also, particularly, I should note when the ordinary is found among the margins and the places mm-hmm. where we would expect to find only despair, only suffering. That's present for sure, but then also, even there, joy bursts out. Yeah, thank you, Eduardo. So Fiesta, family, hospitality, yeah. the holiness of the ordinary. That's a feast for us right there, Mickey. That's Amen. that's a lot to chew on. It really is. Thank you so much, Edgardo. We're so grateful for for you, for the work that you do, and, and thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. Well, thank you for doing this. I was not sure what we were going to be talking about, <laughs> uh, but this was a wonderful conversation. Good being with you. Thanks so much for tuning in to the C4SO podcast. If you like what you heard, please feel free to share this episode and subscribe and leave a review. It helps us to get the word out. Thanks.